The International Association for Near-Death Studies presents NDE Radio, a weekly exploration of near-death experiences and similar encounters with the other side. Now, here's your host, Lee Whitting. When you consider for a moment the life of Hildegard von Bingen, then those who have been given the gift of a mystical experience should realize the importance of not hiding that light under a bushel, but sharing it with the world. Welcome to NDE Radio, brought to you by IANS, the International Association for Near-Death Studies. I'm your host, Lee Whitting. Most of my regular listeners know I'm a practicing chaplain at a hospital here in Maine. Fewer would know I also volunteer as pastor of an independent congregational society called the Union Street Brick Church in Bangor. I mention this today because last Sunday's lectionary reading centered on the parable of the Ten Talents and the Master's reaction to how they were put to use. It reminded me of how shy many folks can be, shy for years about sharing visions and information they've been given about the eternal nature of the soul. So let me begin the show by uh, reading you that parable from Matthew chapter 25. It's titled, The Parable of the Talents. Again, it will be like a man going on a journey who calls his servants and entrusts his property to them. To one he gave five talents of money, to another two talents, and to another one talent, each according to his ability. And by the way, one talent is equal to about a thousand dollars. Then he went on his journey. The man who had been, who had received the five talents went at once and put his money to work and gained five more. So also the one with the two talents gained two more. But the man who had received the one talent went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received the five talents brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five talents. See, I have gained five more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. The man with the two talents also came. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two talents. See, I have gained two more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Then the man who had received the one talent came. Master, he said, I knew that you were a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid and went out and hid your talent in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. His master replied, You wicked, lazy servant. So you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed? Well, then, you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers, so that when I returned I would have received it back with interest. Take the talent from him and give it to the one who has the ten talents. For everyone who has will be given more, and he will have an abundance. And whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken from him. And that's the parable about how we should use our talents. It's, it's interesting that they're titled talents because that's really what we're talking about today. Now here's some of what Wikipedia has to say about Hildegard and how she used her talents. Hildegard von Bingen. Her exact date of birth is uncertain. She was born around the year 1098 to a family of the free lower nobility in the service of the Count Menga.
Art is traditionally considered their youngest and tenth child, although there are records of seven older siblings. In her Vita, Hildegard states that from a very young age, she had experienced visions. And uh, Wikipedia goes on, perhaps due to Hildegard's visions, Hildegard's parents offered her as an oblate to the church. Her Vita says she was enclosed with an older nun, Yuta, at the age of eight. Some scholars speculate that Hildegard was placed in the care of Yuta, the daughter of Count Stefan of Sponheim, at the age of eight, and the two women were enclosed together six years later. The written record of the life of Yuta indicates that Hildegard probably assisted her in reciting the Psalms, working in the garden, and tending the sick. Hildegard tells us that Yuta taught her to read and write but that she was unlearned and therefore incapable of teaching Hildegard biblical interpretation. Hildegard and Yuta most likely prayed, meditated, read scriptures such as the Psalter, and did handwork during the hours of the divine office. This might have been a time when Hildegard learned how to uh, play the ten-string psaltery. Upon Yuta's death in 1136, Hildegard was unanimously elected as magistra of the community by her fellow nuns. Hildegard says that she first saw the shade of the living light at the age of three. and By the age of five, she began to understand that she was experiencing visions. Hildegard explained that she saw all things in the light of God through the five senses, sight, hearing, taste, smell, and touch. Hildegard was hesitant to share her visions, confiding only to Utah, who in turn told Volmar, Hildegard's tutor and later secretary, Throughout her life, she continued to have many visions, and in 1141, at the age of 42, Hildegard received a vision she believed to be an instruction from God to, quote, write down that which you see and hear. Still hesitant to record her visions, Hildegard became physically ill. In her first theological text, know the ways, uh, Hildegard describes her struggle within. This is a quote, but I... Though I saw and heard these things, refused to write for a long time, through doubt and bad opinion and the diversity of human words, not with stubbornness, but in the exercise of humility, until laid low by the scourge of God, I fell upon a bed of sickness. Then, compelled at last by many illnesses and by the witness of a certain noble maiden, I set my hand to the writing. While I was doing it, I sensed as I mentored before the deep profundity of scriptural exposition, and raising myself from illness by the strength I received, I brought this work to a close, though just barely in ten years. And I spoke and wrote these things not by the invention of my heart or that of any other person, but as by the secret mysteries of God I heard and received them in the heavenly places. And again I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, Cry out, therefore, and write thus. It was between November 1147 and February of 1148 as the synod in Trier that Pope Eugenius heard about Hildegard's writings. It was from this that she received a papal approval to document her visions as revelations from the Holy Spirit, giving her, of course, instant credence. So now I'd like to move from this uh, Wikipedia selection to a portion of a paper my wife Charlene wrote several years ago concerning Hildegard's visions. And she begins with a quote from the whirlwinds to Hildegard. Who are you and what are you doing? And what are these battles you are fighting? The whirlwind. 
In the 1141st year of the incarnation of the Son of God, when Hildegard of Bingen was almost 43 years old, an energy like the warm rays of the sun illumined her soul. The light flooded her brain, her intellect, and her emotions. Without time, she comprehended the meaning within all of scriptures. It was not that she understood the sense of every word or the grammar of every sentence, but she knew who she was in eternity, and she knew what she had been doing in the visible and what it meant to the invisible. In the world, she was magistrat of the convent attached to the monastery of Disembodenberg since the death of her mentor, Utah. In 1136, she followed the Benedictine rule and had been educated in the liberal arts. As she herself writes, she had experienced in herself private visions from the age of five. She also had been troubled with ill health, which she finally saw when in extreme suffering as a forceful prodding from God to reveal what had been revealed to her. This she did in her first work, A Know the Ways of the Lord, in which Separate visions were arranged like chapters and organized into three books, The Creator and Creation, The Redeemer and Redemption, and The History of Salvation Symbolized by a Building. The work took ten years to complete with the help of a secretary and was approved before its completion in 1147 by the Pope, Pope Eugenius III. In each chapter, the vision is described with detail so vivid it was possible to paint miniatures that accompanied the text. The mandala-like art doesn't quite convey the special effect movie quality that, that were projected or played upon some interior faculty of Hildegard's consciousness. In her introductory declaration, Hildegard writes that she was awake and not in an altered state when she received the visions. She sees and hears with inner senses seeing with a pure mind out in the open in public places. From the text, it is not clear if the voice which she quotes speaks in real time or if she's had a flash of comprehension that then pours out in words when she records her experience. The voice in her visions tells her she has been chosen and afflicted by the living light to be, quote, placed among great wonders beyond the measure of the ancient people who saw me in many secrets. She is capable because she feels herself incapable with inner distresses and bodily weaknesses. But first and most importantly, she has ascended to humility and has willed the good. Humility is the key virtue. All others follow from it. The human condition appears totally hopeless. Instead of the companion of angels, the human being bearer of the living breath of God, turns its eyes of clay away from the saving dawn of the east to the home of the devil in the north. The senses are filled with the sight of open wounds and the stench of decay. The soul, the life, is a stricken and maimed slave afflicted on all sides by a world filled with vicious and repulsive predators. But we know we are created by God. We remember our mother Zion, where we should have lived. We hear the music of the home of heaven. We remember the glory. The memories only intensify the pain of exile, but even as the soul can know it is lost, it can will to escape. The soul enlivens the body. It flows through every cell. The senses communicate the soul to the body. The fire or power of the soul is manifest in the intellect and the will. The intellect is to the soul as the heart is to the body, 
and the will is like the members, that which moves and does the work. The will and the intellect reside in an inner and protected tabernacle, not made of clay like the body, but of steel. The will then acts to escape the torments of sin and the world and hides the soul away in a cave. This action, this good intent, is aided by grace. The sensing of the lost mother strengthens the resolve to resume the trip away from the north to the east. Life on earth is a pilgrimage along a narrow path that is almost impassable. Finally, a summit is reached, and in a state of exhaustion, the soul faces itself. Everything is questioned, and everything is rejected. A final escape from self seems the only course, but the senses are filled with sorrow. The nature of life itself is static, incapable of productivity. All hope in the good is lost. Very existence is questioned. But then, by grace, the soul remembers it is of and from God, and the will is renewed in the inner tabernacle, which then acts to control the outer one of the body. This is possible by looking at the nature of God and the sacrifice of the Son of God. Virtues bloom from the cleansed earth of the soul, which heighten the senses and spiritual joy. And finally, the first disobedience is overcome in the body, and the virtue of humility in the soul wards off every vice. Another facility of the soul is reason. Reason has sound, has sound and brings understanding through the spoken word. This is also why the Son of God is called the Word, because through him we know and have understanding of God. Wounds, gangrene, stench, bestiality, filth upon filth fills the pages. Is this fastidiousness of some high someone highborn, which Hildegard was? Is it the reality of living without antibiotics, where open, slow healing wounds are common? Is it a revulsion for the detritus of nature in a society that is still living closely to its work to its work animals? Or is it, or is this the true picture of the unconverted soul? This is not uncommon mystical language. There is the other side, thorns that bloom into fragrant roses, the green moist fertility of Eden, the pure greenness of the virgin. There's also the music of heaven and the glorious warm light of the eternal. There's also the question of illness and how constant pain and weakness on one hand and then convalescence on the other can sharpen the awareness of the body and the senses. And uh, she concludes by saying, Oliver Sacks writes about this condition in A Leg to Stand on, a recollection of his own injury and healing. His descriptions of scotoma, which um, they think Hildegard suffered from, and then thankful joy have the same visceral quality of Hildegard's experience. And this is a quote from uh, Oliver Sacks. What was it then that came suddenly back, embodied in music, glorious music, it was the triumphal return of the quintessential living I, lost for two weeks in the abyss, not the ghostly, cogitating, solipsistic I of Descartes, not this impotence, this mentalistic fiction. What came so palpably, so gloriously, was a full-bodied, vital feeling and action originating from an aboriginal, commanding, willing I. What appeared in this moment transcended the physical, but instantly organized and reorganized it into a seamlessly perfect whole. This new hyperphysical principle was grace. Grace entered, as grace enters, at the very center of things, at its hidden, innermost, inaccessible center, 
and instantly coordinate, coordinated, subordinated all phenomena to itself. And that's where Charlene's paper ended. Now, co- coincidentally, I did a paper on uh, Hildegard von Bingen myself, and it was titled uh, Relating Hildegard's Language of Knowing to Our Own. And I'm going to quote some of that to you to uh, round out the show. So my paper begins, One of the problems encountered with many discussions of mystical experience is the experiencer's frequent disclaimer that words cannot express the ineffable event, even though the visionary may go on to write books worth of words about it. And I think you all know about that. Happily, that is uh, not the case with Hildegard von Bingen, whose peculiar temperament gave her a propensity for visions from earliest childhood. She could see things that were invisible to those around her. She foretold the future. And her visual field was filled at all times with a strange luminosity that she later came to call the reflection of the living light. Barbara Newman, Newman in her introduction to Know the Ways of the Lord, uh, the, uh, Hildegard's book, reports that Charles Singer and more recently Oliver Sacks have concluded that the abbess suffered from scintillating scotoma, a form of migraine. Yet if we are to consider Hildegard's writings as a source of spiritual truth, we need to explore her visions not as side effects of disease, but as a vision of a higher reality in both her terms and ours. Fortunately, our knowledge of physics has more than kept pace with our knowledge of psychology, and I think Hildegard's observations deserve vetting in those terms, as well as in the more familiar vocabulary of sickness and hallucination. By examining Hildegard's writings describing angels as a mechanism of contact between the physical and the spiritual worlds, I hope to take the discussion, however briefly, in this different direction. I write here about Hildegard's gift. We inhabit a world our senses define as three-dimensional, and even though theoretical physics posits a ten-dimensional reality, now sometimes eleven dimensions, our age is wedded to its rational perceptions. Now contrast this fact with Hildegard's description of her way of seeing. The light I see thus is not spatial, she writes, but it, it is far, far brighter than a cloud that carries the sun. I can measure neither height nor length nor breadth of it, and I call it the reflection of the living light. Or here's her description of her profound illumination when she was 42. Heaven was opened and a fiery light of exceeding brilliance came and permeated my whole brain and inflamed my whole heart, my whole breast, not like a burning, but like a warming flame. And immediately I knew the meaning of the exposition of the scriptures, namely the Psalter, the Gospel, and the other Catholic volumes of both the Old and New Testaments, though I did not have the interpretation of the words of their texts, or the division of the syllables, or the knowledge of cases and tenses. Now this description closely approximates Acts' description of the flames of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came down on the heads of the apostles. If we are to believe in the possibility of such an event, then we should consider Hildegard's description as not merely symbolic, but real in every sense of that word. In his commentary on Hildegard's illuminations, Matthew Fox writes, In my opinion, this synchronicity between a 12th century mystic and a 20th century physicist 
is one of the obvious examples of how Hildegard did not know all that she was saying. In other words, her writing and visioning were truer than her conscious awareness could articulate. Of course, scientists other than psychologists have considered rational scientific mechanisms to explain Hildegard's visions, such as uh, Fox has mentioned that uh, scientists from the University of Munich had recently been doing studies of Hildegard's cell and have found there uh, as high an electromagnetic energy source as exists anywhere in Europe. Hildegard must have spent many sleepless nights in the cell, Matthew, Matthew Fox says. That such a setting might help facilitate visions in no way conflicts with the authenticity of the illuminations Hildegard describes. And Hildegard spoke about angels. Vision 6 of Book 1, titled The Choirs of Angels, provide Hildegard's description of two armies of faithful angels and further describes their ranks by form and emanation. She writes in part, Then I saw in the secret places in the heights of heaven two armies of heavenly spirits who shone with great brightness. Those in one of the armies had on their breasts wings which with forms like human forms in front of them, on which human features showed as if in clear water. Those in the second army also had wings on their breasts which displayed forms like human forms in which the image of the Son of Man shone as if in a mirror. And I could see no other form either in these or in the two others. In her explication, Hildegard makes clear that angels are created creatures like humankind and indicates that God destined some created creatures to inhabit celestial regions in the height of secret places that the bodily eye cannot penetrate, but the inner sight can see. So with her inner sight, Hildegard describes what might be called projections, complete with wings for vanishing points, from another dimension into our own. Their duties, links, likenesses, whatever, are projections too, quote, with forms like human forms in front of them, on which human features showed as if in clear water. Interesting description. Such a description of projections from another dimension have much in common with superstring theory, in which physicist-mathematician Michio Kaku describes our reality is projections of strings from other dimensions. We see the ends of strings with our ordinary vision, while the bulk of reality stretches out of our perception through the rest of the ten-dimensional universe. While it's beyond the scope, I write, of this paper to delve into at length into superstring theory, an, an analogy from high school science class makes the point clear enough to continue our dialogue with Hildegard. School teachers tell their students the story of the Flatlanders, imaginary two-dimensional creatures that inhabit a sheet of paper sitting before you on the desk. Being two-dimensional, all the flatlanders can perceive is length and breadth on the flat plane of the paper. Bring a pencil point down to their flat world, and it will seem to them as if a miracle has occurred. A point has appeared out of nowhere, for all they can see is the tip of the pencil. They are blind to the bulk of the pencil as it rises away from the paper into a dimension they cannot envision. Only a theoretical mathematician or a flatlander, Hildegard, could describe the possibility of a number two yellow shaft rising invisibly from a visible point into a secret place of God's creation. Should the physics of Hildegardian visions matter in any way to the spiritual insight we gain from her? Should or shouldn't are no longer relevant questions to our three-dimensional rational world. 
The fact is that Hildegard's relevance won't survive beyond the role of feminist hero if it's only to be measured in poetical terms. And to her credit, she would not have wanted uh, her books to be read as poetic symbolism anyway. Continuing in her vision of the choirs of angels, Hildegard wrote, But these armies were also arrayed like a crown around two others. Those in the first of these other armies seemed to be full of eyes and wings, and in each eye appeared a mirror, and in each mirror a human form. And they raised their wings to a celestial height, and those in the second burned like fire and had many wings, in which they showed as if in a mirror all the church ranks arrayed in order. And I saw no other shape either in these or in the others. And all these armies were singing with marvelous voices all kinds of music about the wonders that God works in blessed souls. And by this God was magnificently glorified. Hildegard sees an integral connection here between the spiritual world and our own, such that spiritual eyes, knowledge, reflect on... um, and through human action in ways that reflect on and imply the spiritual battle she mentions elsewhere. There is no rest implied, only energy, but sustaining and uniting, like the church below, the heavenly choir expresses a sustained energy in praise of the good and of God. In commenting on the imagery of light and mirroring, Rupert Sheldrake writes, Hildegard goes further than saying that the angels' reflections or mirrors light streams out through them and the spheres of light depend on them. They are now intermediaries as well as mirrors. In a sense, that they are two-way mirrors. They reflect back to God. God is seeing the God-self in the mirror of the angels. At the same time, they are intermediaries transmitting the light of God into the realms of life. The angels' tongues are pure praise. Fire is also praise. The flickering flames are praise. Voice is praise. Hearing is praise. All these images of praise are images of movement. Fire moves. Wind moves. Tongues move. Breath moves. Hearing moves. In this praise, there is a reverse movement toward God, perhaps a mirroring. Energy moves out from God through the angels, and this movement back toward God in the form of praise, is vibratory, dynamic, and meaningful. Well, I think uh, we're growing short on time here, and so I would like to reiterate in my presentation, this, this very quick presentation on Hildegard von Bingen, the power that she has um, displayed down through the ages, not only in terms of her mystical uh, visions for other mystics to to inspire them, to help them to communicate, but also to enlightened physicists, scientists looking at what she's saying as a as a physical reality, uh, albeit one that uh, that reaches into different dimensions. This is the importance of the work that you and everyone listening who uh, who has possibly had a mystical experience, an NDE or something like that can bring to the world if only you're willing to speak about it. Now, to be fair, Hildegard, it took her years. It wasn't until she was 42 that she heard clearly from the voice of God to write it down and spread the word. And so uh, that's that's the message that I hope is brought to you today. So I've devoted the show to Hildegard's story for that reason. 
Namely, if, if a woman in the subservient role of nun during the benighted Middle Ages could overcome self-doubt to tell the world of her mystical insights, then any of us, men and women both, should be able to do the same. And look at the changes she wrought by sharing the light of her revelations. Her writings, her art and music are still being considered today by philosophers, theologians, and scientists as well. And she continues to inspire us to be brave in using our gifts. Well, it looks like we're just about out of time for today. If you'd like to listen again to this or any of our past shows, just go to our website at nderadio.org. And for more information about the work of IANS, check out their website, iands.org. And tune in next Monday, 11 a.m. Eastern, for more NDE Radio. This is Lee Whitting saying thanks for listening.